0: Your Bible to Matthew Chapter twenty three Verse thirty seven. Is our text verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine? This is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in the original language in which it was given, um, and it remains to us in faithful translations. The Authoritative word of God. So God is the one who speaks here as I read to you. Listen reverently. Matthew 24, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Pray with me. O oh Lord, we covet, covet your presence at all times, but especially now. Uh, Lord, this can be a very dangerous time uh, when a, a sinner is proclaiming your word. It can be easily mishandled. We pray that it would not be so, that you would grant me the grace to properly uh, teach and instruct your people from your Word in a way that is in accordance with the meaning that you had when you had this Word written down by Matthew. Please honor yourself in this time. Please work in the hearts of each person listening. And please glorify yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever um, tried to prevent someone from doing something that you didn't want them to do? I'll give you a couple of examples, one maybe from your own life, and I'll give you one from from my life when I was a kid, actually. Um, I'll give you an example again. So, ever tried to prevent someone from doing something you didn't want that person to do? Maybe, and this is just an example, maybe you did something okay, that you shouldn't have done. In other words, you did something wrong. And maybe you had a brother or sister nearby who saw what you did and said, I'm going to go tell mommy or daddy. And started the brother or sister started heading to the house to tell on you. And you ran after and grabbed a hold of him maybe and said, "Don't Don't do that. Don't do that. I don't know if that ever happened to you, but it did to me. I've smacked my brother, and anyway, um, speaking of my brother, I'll give you a second uh, example of this. Now, this is from my life when I was a. Uh, even though I did occasionally smack my brother, uh, this is an example of my trying to protect my brother when I was a little boy. I was. Uh, I would have been probably about uh, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old at this point in time. And my brother was two years younger than I was, so I used to regularly. Try to prevent my brother from watching a certain program on television, which was scary. I had seen the program. Um, it involved monsters, which are fake, by the way. There aren't, no, there aren't such things. But, uh, I, I had, the program was about monsters and it came on every single, uh, week at the same time. And it was really scary. It really, it, it scared the daylights out of me when I, when I saw it. Uh, and I didn't want my brother to see that program. And so every Sunday, it was it was Sunday afternoon, I shouldn't have been watching television on Sunday, but every Sunday at 5 o'clock, I think is when it came on, um, I would go to my brother and say, hey, Eric, let's play a game of Monopoly. And I would do it strategically at that time, or just before that time, so that Eric wouldn't go over and turn the television on uh, and possibly see that program that I didn't want to, to have the effect on him that it had on me, which was to really, really scare me badly. And I didn't want him, even though he was sometimes annoying, I didn't want him to be scared, like I had been scared. And so I would uh, do everything I could to prevent him from from turning on the television. And by the way, he never did. I don't think he ever saw that program. Uh, I must have done that for a, a year or more, and it worked every time. He and I would play a game of Monopoly, and it was always very competitive, you know. But at any rate, maybe you've had something like that where you have tried to prevent somebody from doing something that you didn't want them to do. Well, um, this passage is contains an example of some people, actually, they were religious leaders in Jesus' day, who were trying to prevent certain other people, namely. Uh, the, the Jewish people that they were responsible for caring for spiritually, trying to prevent them from doing something that they, the religious leaders, didn't want them to do. And I'll tell you what it is right now. And that is, they didn't want, the religious leaders didn't want the people of Jerusalem and ultimately of all of Israel to hear what Jesus had to say. And they tried to prevent him from keeping doing that. And we're going to. This passage is about that. Now it may not immediately be evident that that's about that, but I'm going to show you why it is, and uh, give you some of the background here. There are two points. The first is um, considerably longer than the second one. And by the way, I, I got to warn you here. I'm going pretty deep at one point in this sermon, so you got to stay awake. And you got to stay alert. Uh, otherwise you 're going to miss what i 'm saying and go what um, so you need to hang on because it, it gets pretty theological at one point but it 's very important because this passage is being u- is used uh, by certain well meaning Christians to say something that or teach something that it doesn 't teach so uh, be aware of that but here are the two points that we 're going to look at first one is this uh, that, that uh, unpacking this passage we 're going to look at christ 's denunciation of the Old Testament Church's leaders for hindering those under their spiritual care from hearing the truth. Christ's denunciation of the Old Testament Church's leaders for hindering those under their spiritual care from hearing the truth. And secondly, we're going to see much more briefly Christ's judgment upon the Old Testament Church's leaders for hindering those under their spiritual care from hearing the truth. So first the denunciation, then the judgment. The denunciation. What truth were was being uh am I referring to when I speak of the Old Testament leaders hindering uh those under their care from hearing the truth? It's the truth about who Jesus was and about their need of him as their Messiah and their savior. That is the truth. In other words, the gospel and uh, its, it's the core elements of the gospel. Uh, but, but, but it could easily be expanded beyond just the core elements of the gospel to the greater truth of God's word, which ultimately is also gospel uh, in a broader uh, definition of the term. But um, you'll notice he says there in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So, background here. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Um is, Jerusalem is Israel's historic capital city. It's a special place. It's Zion. It's a picture of heaven. Um, and therefore Jerusalem represented the entire Jewish nation and the Jewish church, the Old Testament church, because it was its capital. So when we're speaking of Jerusalem, as I speak of Jerusalem and its inhabitants as I, we go through this message, think also about, we're not just talking about Jerusalem, we're also talking about who Jerusalem represented and it represented uh, really all of the uh, 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 of the covenant people of that day, especially those that lived in, in Judea and and, uh, and Galilee. But Jesus is addressing here the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. He's speaking on this occasion. This is a, his last public discourse. I've mentioned that before. His, his last public sermon, if you will, that was delivered in the last week of his life on Tuesday of the last week of his life. And so he's, he's speaking here to a large group of people. He's in Jerusalem and he's talking to them uh as well as many other people who aren't originally who aren't from Jerusalem proper but have come into town for the feast of passover so there are lots of pilgrims that are also listening to jesus on this occasion and the entire discourse the entire sermon which begins at the very beginning of chapter 23 and concludes with the very last verse of chapter 23. But if you go all the way up to verse 36, uh, before this conclusion which we're looking at today, the entire discourse has been dedicated to furiously condemning the scribes and the Pharisees by Jesus. Jesus is is, is, uh, denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees who were the spiritual leaders of the Old Testament Jewish church. They were uh, uh, amongst the spiritual leaders. Also, the you could throw the Sadducees in there as well. Um, and they're probably in view also, even though he's mentioning just the scribes and the Pharisees here. But Jesus in this sermon is condemning repeatedly, and we looked at this uh, in weeks past, repeatedly condemning the religious leaders of that day for their hypocrisy, for their pride, for their self-righteousness, for their greed, for their prioritizing of their rabbinical traditions over God's law, for their unnecessary burdening and preying upon God's people, and for their hatred of God's servants, and for their murderous intentions towards those servants. I mean, it's just, its he excoriates the religious leadership of the day, who were headquartered in Jerusalem understanding that that's what this whole sermon has been about, and understanding that condemning those religious leaders of that day was this discourse's sole emphasis, the sole emphasis of this discourse. Knowing that helps us to identify who it is Jesus is referring to here in the discourse's conclusion, which is verses 37 through 39. So too does remembering... um, helping us identify who he's referring to by Jerusalem, is also helped by remembering where the Sanhedrin, which is the organizational body through which these pastors of the Jewish people ruled, where the Sanhedrin was headquartered and met. And that was, of course, in Jerusalem. Okay? We are further aided in identifying who Jesus is referring to in verse 37 and following by remembering that it was these spirits shepherds of Israel, shepherds of the Jewish church who would soon be themselves particularly responsible for killing and stoning the prophets whom God had already sent or was about to send to Jerusalem and indeed to the rest of the Jewish nation. It was the Jewish leaders, the members of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, Pharisees, and the uh, and the uh, Sadducees. It was they who would soon be arranging to have the ultimate prophet of the church, not just any prophet, but the ultimate prophet of Israel put to death by the Romans. It was going to happen in hours from the time when this sermon is preached that they are going to begin their scheme of of, uh, getting Jesus arrested and killed. It was these false shepherds of God's people who shortly after Pentecost would themselves stone Stephen to death, the great preacher through whom God had been working marvelous miracles uh, after Pentecost. It was these wolves in sheep's clothing who would send Saul of Tarsus to the synagogues in Damascus to arrest any believers that, Je- that uh, uh, any believers that were found there and bring them back to Jerusalem for sentencing, and. After Saul became a follower and apostle of Christ, it was these men, these religious leaders, who participated in a failed scheme to have Paul murdered, which is recorded in Acts 23, verse 12 and following. They eventually, of course, got the job done. Uh, Paul was eventually sent off to Rome uh, and was killed, uh, presumably, uh, undoubtedly, by the Roman emperor, eventually. But uh, not at their hands directly. Thus... So, given all that, when Jesus, at the conclusion of this diatribe, dedicated to denouncing Israel's religious leaders, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, it is clear, I'm absolutely convinced, otherwise I wouldn't be preaching this way, it is clear that he is still addressing still addressing these same individuals. That is to say, the scribes and the Pharisees, and presumably by extension the other parties who were represented on the council, like I say, the uh, the, the, um, the Sadducees uh, and, and perhaps also the Zealots. That's who he's talking here when he says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Context is how you determine the meaning of any given verse of scripture. And the context here is, this is all an assault on the religious establishment and their... Uh, Faithless, uh, um, doing of their jobs, which is pastoring God's people. He distinguishes, Jesus does in verse 37, he is distinguishing here between those whom he refers to as Jerusalem, who I, like I said, am convinced is a reference to the religious, the faithless religious establishment, and he makes a distinction between them and those he refers to as Jerusalem's children. Again, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather, he doesn't say you, he says how often I wanted to gather your children. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but, uh, and that, uh, the New American Standard there translates it, and it should be rendered but, uh, but you were unwilling. We're going to talk about who the you is in just a moment. But there's a distinction here between Jerusalem and Jerusalem's children that Jesus is making in that very verse. It was customary to call the men who were responsible for the spiritual oversight of God's people fathers. I pointed this out a few weeks ago in a sermon that I preached. I pointed out that Paul refers to himself as the Corinthian, the Corinthian believers' father in the faith. He just says "your father," but he means father in the faith. So it's not that. Uh, so that that's an example of of uh, uh, the use of a father, the description "father" to describe a spiritual leader, and it was therefore because that was uh, a. a a regular thing that was done a customary thing it was therefore equally customary to call those under the spiritual care of the of the church's spiritual fathers their children okay so the fathers and the children so when jesus speaks of jerusalem's children here in verse 37 he is referring to the capital city's jewish occupants who were the sheep if you will under the care of the shepherds, uh, and not just, of course, Jerusalem, but indeed all of Israel's, uh, the the Jewish people, uh, for whom the the Sanhedrin was responsible. Okay, so that's the children. The children are the people, the laity, uh, in the the Old Testament church, who the uh, who the Jewish leaders were responsible for caring for their souls, and Jesus says. How often I wanted I wanted and here's where it gets deep how often I wanted to gather your children together but you were unwilling this this very verse has been used by well-meaning Christians and I'm not saying anything about their their uh in any way denying that uh, well-meaning Christians uh hold to this and but well-meaning Christians have used this verse to say People can resist God's will. God might want something, but but people, because of their intransigence, can resist the will of God successfully. And God's will can be thwarted. So God wants to save everybody. Some would say that. Many would say that, actually. Uh, But he doesn't get the job done because people are unwilling to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus. That's how this verse has regularly been used. That is false. I hope you all know that. But what does it say? How do we avoid that conclusion? And how do we make sense out of the words that Jesus says here? I wanted to gather your children, the, uh, your, uh, your, those who inhabit uh, this city and beyond. I wanted to gather them, but you were unwilling. It sounds on, on a superficial read that the Armenian folks who, Armenian folks who quote this passage to defend their view are right. They're not. Here's what's going on, okay? And again, this gets deep, so hang, hang with me. Jesus is not referring here when he says, I wanted or I wished or I willed. Jesus is not referring or speaking, if you will, from his divine will as God the Son when he says that he wanted to gather all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to himself, but had been prevented from doing so, as the verse seems to imply. That's not what he is saying. He's not referring to his divine will. Now remember, so, so you kind of go, what are you talking about? Hang with me. Remember, because Jesus was and is both 100% God and 100% man, he has both a divine and a human will, and they are distinguishable. Early on in the church, the New Testament church's history, the New Testament church, and the uh, I think it was the five hundreds, maybe, might have been the six hundreds, condemned a heresy known as monothelitism. Uh, mono means one, uh, thelos. Uh, th- I'm getting my, my mixing up my Greek here. It means will, Athelatus I think is what it is. No, that's not right. Anyway, it's it's one will. Okay, that's what the heresy was, and the early church is belief that Jesus had only one will, and that one will was the divine will. That's the only will he had, and that was mellow, what Monothelitism taught, and it was condemned by one of the early church councils as a heresy, and it, rightly so. As the God-man, hyphen, in there, he he has had and has a will as God and a will as man. So, how do we know that Jesus is not speaking from his divine will when he says that he wanted to gather every inhabitant of Jerusalem to himself? And most people say that must mean as Savior and Lord. That I wanted to save everybody in Jerusalem. I wanted to see everybody come to faith in, and you know, he, he wanted everybody to come to faith in him and receive forgiveness through him. How do we know that Jesus is not speaking from his divine will? Well, because God, by definition, always gets what he wants, always, or he's not God, right? So all those in Jerusalem whom God the Son wanted, and of course, whatever God the Son wanted, uh, God the Holy Spirit, God God the Father, the triune God wanted, all those in Jerusalem whom God, I'll just stick with God the Son, wanted to spiritually gather to himself to make them his true believing children, all those he wanted to gather, he gathered. Notwithstanding the effort of the scribes and the Pharisees to prevent that from happening. To prevent anybody from being gathered, the people who Jesus wanted to gather were gathered. Because he's God. And if he wanted that, he got it done. Because he's God. It's not his divine will, though, that he is, he is if you will, speaking from when he says how often I wanted to gather you. Rather, it is it was Jesus' human will, if you will that was speaking on this occasion when he indicated that he had wanted to gather the Jewish people to himself. And the gathering that he, in his humanity, had wanted to see happening, or wanted to see happen rather, that gathering that he wanted, that he spoke of there, was not a saving spiritual gathering or redemptive gathering of all of J- J- Jerusalem's inhabitants into his spiritual kingdom. That's not the gathering he's talking about, but it was rather a physical, bodily gathering before him to hear the gospel proclaimed by him that he's speaking of here. I am convinced. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing up here telling you this. John Gill... Uh, one of our Puritan forefathers, says, and he was the one that really helped me to see this, by the way, says that Jesus wished for all of Jerusalem to hear him preach, and now I'm quoting from Gill, so, that the, so as that they might be brought to a conviction of and an assent unto him as the Messiah, which, though it might fall short of saving faith in him, would have been sufficient to have preserved them from the temporal ruin threatened to their city and temple in the following verse. And by the way, that following verse is, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now, lest you think that Jesus' human will and divine will can't be distinguished. I want you to look, we're going to look at two passages together briefly. One is Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And the other one is in Luke, and it's a similar, um, it's a similar reference, but this is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, verse thirty-six of Mark fourteen. Um, he went uh, verse thirty-five, and he went a little beyond them, the disciples, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, "Abba, Father." All things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. You hear that? Not what I will, but what thou wilt. And likewise over in Luke chapter 22 verse forty two, similar language, uh, same situation. Uh, He says, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Now the Father's will is identical to the will of God the Son. But here in these verse this in this situation, Jesus is making a distinction between his will and the Father's will. But the Father's will is the Son's will. And yet he's saying, but not my will be done. What I'm getting at, folks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Gill one more time to make this point, Gill says of Jesus' human will, quote, though it is not contrary to the divine will, but subordinate to it, yet it is not always the same with it nor always fulfilled. Whereas his divine will, or his will as God, is always fulfilled. And then he quotes from Romans uh, 9.19. Who hast resisted thy will? And then Gil goes on, "This His divine will cannot be hindered and made void. He does whatsoever he pleases. End of quote. And now I'll add this to what Gil just said. However, and this is me saying this, while his divine will cannot be hindered, his human will could be hindered during his time upon the earth. And it was so on this occasion. I would argue. And I'm arguing. But you were unwilling. Who is the you? You. Jesus, as a in his human will, was willing, was desirous to gather all of Jerusalem to before him to preach to every last inhabitant of Jerusalem the gospel and tell them that he is their savior. But Jerusalem's leaders were not; they didn't want that to happen. They did not want Jerusalem's or Judea's and Galilee's inhabitants to sit under Jesus' teaching, and as a result of doing so, possibly be gathered under his wings by becoming one of his genuine followers. And apparently they did, had done uh, and had been doing everything in their power to deter those under their spiritual care from listening to or carefully considering or being present for Jesus' teaching. And they did this. They undermined Jesus' teaching by their own uh, teachings contradicting what Jesus was saying and by bad mouthing Jesus, uh, presumably, uh, trying to cause the people to not trust him as, uh, you know, saying he's, uh, uh, Beelzebul and so on and so forth, um, trying to get them to go, oh, we can't, we can't pay attention to that Jesus. And their desire was to prevent, uh, as many people, uh, as possible amongst the Jewish people from hearing Christ preach. And they were successful in part of thwarting Jesus' human will, not his divine will. A human will, the human will which is not always the same with the divine will, nor always fulfilled, but subordinate to it. How does this apply to us? Well, The point I'm trying to make here is that Christ, the head of his church, the head of the church, is furious. This whole discourse makes that point. When those who are responsible for fostering the spiritual well-being of his people hinder those very same individuals from hearing his own truth as set forth in his written word. It infuriates the Savior, the King of the Church. What are some ways in which pastors and church leaders do this today? By neglecting to teach God's Word, but rather engaging in uh, sermonizing about uh, seven ways to a better marriage, to a better life, to more money, blah, 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 self-help stuff. Rather than focusing on scripture, teaching psychology from a pulpit, psychological principles developed by godless men and women, and by storytelling, just telling stories and not bothering to delve into the scriptures. Men do that all the time in churches around our land. And a second way in which pastors and church leaders do this is by not preaching or teaching the whole counsel of God, but rather teaching selectively what they would like to teach the people rather than everything that's there. This, by the way, is the danger. I'm not saying that all topical preaching is always wrong, but this is the danger of regularly engaging in topical preaching, uh, as opposed to preaching through books of the Bible. Because you're forced, if you preach through books of the Bible, to get everything that God says, and deal with everything that God says, not just what the pastor or the session wants you to hear. And it's a grave sin to not give God's people to the best of your ability all of this. Including the stuff that's difficult to understand like verse 37. Or easy to misunderstand uh, like verse 37. So, we have seen talked extensively about Jesus' denunciation of the Old Testament church's leaders for hindering those under their spiritual care from hearing the truth. Now let's look briefly at the judgment of our Savior upon those same church leaders. He says in verse 38, Your house is going to be left to you desolate. Again, who is he speaking to? Jerusalem. Who is Jerusalem? Not Jerusalem's children, but the leaders of the the, uh, Jewish church, the uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and by extension the the uh, Sadducees as, as well and he's saying behold your church or your house rather is being left to you desolate who what constitutes their house? It's referring first and foremost to the very city itself of Jerusalem, where these very men lived in their stately palaces in luxury. Um, with their with their elegant robes and all that sort of stuff and their servants and whatnot, who you can be sure most of these men uh, had all of those luxuries. Within 40 years' time, Jer- uh, Jerusalem would be laid waste by the Romans. Flattened. So it was referring clearly to their city that they if you will, claimed as their own, and also to the temple, is undoubtedly a reference uh, is to be included in their house. Because the temple, of course, we know this from Jeremiah uh, chapter uh, 7, verses 4 through 8, I'll only read verse 4, but we know that the religious leaders of Jeremiah's day, but also of Jesus' day, looked to the temple standing there on Mount Moriah, to assure them, and it's it's and it's all its uh, gleaming gilded luster, they looked to that to assure them that God was pleased with them. Back in Jeremiah chapter seven, we read that. Um, uh, Jeremiah is denouncing Judah for its uh, externalized religion. And he says in verse 4, Do not trust in deceptive words saying, the uh, the ideas they were trusting. He said, Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, they were clinging to that temple in an idolatrous fashion and indicating, Well, the temple is there. That means all is well between us and God. The temple, too, would be raised in 70 A.D. along with the rest of the city. Stone would not sit upon stone after the Romans were done with it. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. God was going to take everything they, the religious leaders, cherished most from them. Their, their precious city and their precious temple, which God, by the way, well, I'll get to that just in a second. I'll get to it now. What would be the explanation for why the capital city and the temple of the Lord that had once been God's earthly dwelling place on earth, what would be the explanation for why the earthly capital of Jerusalem and its temple would soon be no more? The reason is given in verse 39. For I say to you, notice the four, that's the connector with the previous verse, behold, your house is being left to you des- desolate. Why? Because, for I say to you, from now on, and he doesn't mean right from that moment, but he's talking about, uh, uh, uh at the, uh, that time period, uh, after his re- resurrection from the, uh, Resurrection and ascension into heaven forty days after his resurrection. Uh, That, as speaking of that, is one time. Uh, From now on, you shall not see me. You shall not see me, God the Son, until you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Jesus uh, was going to, as I've already indicated, permanently withdraw his bodily presence from from the city and from the Temple Mount. Forty days after his resurrection, which was coming on Sunday of the next week, the next day, uh, five days, wait, six days, five, from the day he's preaching this sermon. And forty days after that resurrection, he was going to bodily ascend, never to return bodily again until the second coming. And not only was his bodily presence removed, he, uh, permanently withdrew his covenantal blessing from both of these physical entities, both this building and this city. And what it represented was the Jewish church as a Jewish church. Those physical entities of the city and the temple itself, the building itself, were shadowy elements of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that had served their purpose and were no longer needed and were no longer objects of covenantal blessing as such. And Jesus was the reason they were going to be destroyed was because Jesus was leaving permanently from those Old Testament shadows as shadows. When and how did the scribes and the Pharisees say, or when would they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? I'm just going to read a little section from um, Matthew, excuse me, not Matthew, Henry, um, William Hendrickson in his commentary on Matthew which is an excellent commentary. Hendrickson says this, and I, about this last uh, saying here, um, actually about verse 39. He says, The meaning is that after this week of the Passion, Jesus will not again publicly reveal himself to the Jews until the day of his second coming. Except for a brief transition period, and he He cites Acts uh, 13.46. Except for a brief transition period, the day of special opportunity, not of any opportunity, but of special opportunity for the Jews, is past. At Christ's return upon the clouds of glory, every eye shall see him. Revelation one seven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will then be on every lip. Those who will have repented before they died will then, at that glorious coming, proclaim Christ joyfully. The others, ruefully, remorsefully, not penitently. But so majestic and radiant will be Christ's glory that all will feel impelled to render homage to him. And, uh, Hendrickson doesn't say this, but including the scribes and the Pharisees. They'll hate him, but they'll render honor. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In conclusion, how do we apply this passage further? I think it's pretty clear. God is... Not only furious with religious leaders whom he has, uh, who are supposed to be caring for people's spiritual needs under them, he also punishes, uh, spiritual leaders who do not faithfully care for their people by teaching them the whole counsel of God. So, 30 years from now when I'm gone, make sure you get a man in here and make sure you also elect to the session men for whom this is true. Otherwise, you'll get caught up in the judgment upon the religious leaders. If there's any of you here who are listening to me at home who think, how, how, does this, uh, how does this apply to me? I mean, you need to hear that God is a God who is wrathful. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is a God who is wrathful towards those who do not love him and are not trusting in Jesus for their forgiveness. There are Jews in early uh, in the uh, when Jesus was in in Jerusalem who did respond favorably, because God the Son willed in His divine will that they should. But there were many who didn't respond favorably. They never many didn't even hear apparently uh, Jesus preach. It would seem from is uh, implied from the text you were uh, you were unwilling to let those people hear uh, in. People here. The point is, there's judgment for those who do not flee to Christ as their only hope of being forgiven. And you can't just accept Jesus as your get-out-of-hell-card-free, as fire insurance. You must receive him for who he is. He is the prophet, priest, and king of his people, or to put it in more uh, contemporary language, Savior and Lord. And you must embrace Him for who He is, as He is, Savior and Lord. And He will be, if He is going to be your Savior, He is going to be your Lord as well. And if you don't want Him as your Lord, you're not going to get Him as your Savior. You need to embrace Him by faith for who He is, and He will change your life. And you have to be willing to do that. You have to want that from Him, and you have to believe in Him to do that as well as to save you from your sins. Only faith in Christ can bring about God's pardon of your sins and make you right in his sight. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. If you want him, then take him by faith. And if you don't, may God have mercy on your soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for challenging passages of Scripture. Uh, This is challenging. It was challenging for me. I think it was challenging for the hearers as well. But Lord, uh, your, your Scriptures are worthy to be plumbed as far as we can plumb them because you are worthy of such interest on our part and such hunger on our part for the truth. Would you please, Lord, uh, apply this sermon, however you want to apply it, to the hearts of those who are listening. Would you please encourage those who need encouragement, rebuke those who need rebuke? Would you please instruct those who need instruction and humble those who need humbling? And would you please save those who you wish in your divine will to save? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord's Supper is one of two holy ordinances that we often in our circles refer to as sacraments that the Lord Jesus gave to the New Testament church before his ascension into heaven. Record of the the other sacrament of course is baptism. Record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in several places in the New Testament, one of which is Luke chapter twenty two, starting in verse fourteen. I'll read that to you now. And when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper is a uh, sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Uh, We believe that's what the scriptures teach. That it is, a, it is a sign, uh, in that it is symbolic. It points to the elements themselves, uh, and, uh, my handling of the elements point to the, uh, uh, um, ratification of the covenant in the crosswork of Christ or the atoning work of Christ. But it is more than just a symbolic thing. Um, it is also a seal. Uh, and this is something that God is doing. God is uh, sealing for us the promises of the covenant through our partaking of this meal. And so uh, he, he is reaffirming, confirming, um, um, guaranteeing afresh the promises that he has made to you and me in the gospel, that they are yes and amen in Christ. Uh, and that we can stake our very eternal destiny, uh, our souls, if you will, upon those promises uh, as we look to them in faith by looking to Jesus uh, in faith. And as signs and seals of the covenant, they are also uh, means of sanctifying grace. Uh, the Holy Spirit mysteriously uh, uses uh, our right participation of this meal um, to strengthen God's people. Uh, it indicates this over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think it's... I can't remember if it's verse 24, but anyway, Paul there speaks about, uh, the, uh, the efficacy of, uh, the meal, um, and how it is, how it is a means of blessing. He refers to the cup as a cup of blessing. Why so? Because it, because right partaking of, of it and the, the, the bread as well blesses. God blesses that, uh, God the Holy Spirit. It is to be observed, the Lord's Supper is, in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, uh, indeed all of his cross work on our behalf, uh, and by partaking of this meal we proclaim uh, Christ's death until he returns. It is of great benefit to us uh, because of that blessing of the Holy Spirit if we rightly partake by faith, trusting in Jesus alone. Um, this meal is not for everyone to partake of. This is only for those who are truly children of God. Uh, By that I mean not uh, just a human being, but I mean a person who has been adopted into God's family by believing in Jesus Christ alone. Unbelievers, unbeknownst to most of them, are children of the devil. They are in his kingdom. They belong to him. They serve him. Uh, All of us were there at one point, at some point in our journey of life, until God was merciful to us and gave us new hearts. Um. And now we are in the kingdom of light, but um, if uh, and that is by adoption, he has adopted us into his uh, holy family. But if you're not a Christian, if or if you're not sure you're a Christian, uh, then you really need to not partake of this meal. This meal is for God's people, those who know themselves to be Christians, uh, forgiven by God through Christ. Um, we, uh, you also need to be a baptized member in uh, in good standing, that is to say not under discipline, in uh, an evangelical church. It doesn't have to be this church, uh, but it has to be a church that says and teaches that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to be forgiven, and it's only through faith in him that a person is uh, receives uh, forgiveness and eternal life. If your church believes that, you are more than welcome to participate with us, assuming, of course, you are also a Christian. If you are here today and you are somehow playing games with God, you are engaged in some kind of behavior or attitude um, that you know is displeasing to God, and yet you just don't really care enough to depart from that sinful behavior or attitude or words, Um you may well not be a Christian at all. For one thing, you don't have a right to think you're a Christian. Although Christians sometimes do that kind of uh, uh, thing, but you don't have a right to believe you're a Christian, and you certainly shouldn't be coming to this table if you are uh, if you have unrepentant sin in your life. Uh, this is not for you. You will be you will anger God if you do that. Uh, but if you're struggling with sin, if you we all struggle with sin. Not a one of us doesn't. If you're struggling with sin, you don't, you hate it, you know it's grievous to God, uh, you want to be rid of it, but it keeps rearing its ugly head in your life and did this past week. That's okay as long as you hate it and regularly ask for forgiveness. It's okay. In fact, this, you need this meal so that you might be strengthened in your ability to resist the temptation to engage in that sinful behavior again. Uh, and trust the Holy Spirit to give you that strength. So, let's pray now for God's blessing upon our uh, partaking. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be further blessed by you. We thank you that we um, that this meal is designed to nourish our souls uh to feed us spiritually so that we might grow in grace we ask that you would use it toward this end lord not so much for our sake although we certainly uh desire to be blessed but for your glory that that we might more fully reflect um uh your glory back to you through the way we live and think and speak. We pray that you would set these um, elements aside from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. And would you please uh, bless us as we partake, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, um, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we are all served, and then we will uh, partake together. The uh, bread is in individual cups, so that you only have to handle your cup. Um, and we'll wait until we're all served, and the same with the... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he took the cup And having given thanks, as we have already done, in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. There is grape juice in the middle, the very middle of the trays, and wine around the perimeter. We would encourage you, unless you can't partake of the wine, in good conscience to partake of the wine. Um, But there is grape juice in the middle for those who can't. blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this Holy Sacrament, and we thank you for allowing us to commune with you in a special way through it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have all that we need through our union with you. We ask that you would grow us in grace, that you would help us in our battle against indwelling sin and the world and the evil one. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us increasingly useful to you, our master, our king. And we thank you again so much for what you did for us that is uh, displayed in this meal uh, symbolically. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.